Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at AirlinesConfidential.com. I'm told he once asked Brooke Shields out on a date. Yeah, he's Ben Baldanza, former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. Is that true, Ben? Well, that is true, and there's a whole backstory to it, but I'm not going to take this podcast to tell it. <laughs> Let's just maybe say, we'll get you to open up later. <laughs> Let's just say she was very friendly. Okay. <laughs> Okay, well, you know, this crisis has us all relying on skills that maybe we earned in the past or didn't know we needed, like cleaning and cooking and maybe repairs around the house. Well, when people realize that he was a successful grant writer, airlines will be clamoring to him for some help now. That's (laughs) Seth Kaplan, NPR's here and now transportation analyst. Successful for like five months, Ben. But it was useful. It was useful. Pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. Today, we'll talk about yet another airline bankruptcy. And it's an airline a lot of people have heard of. We'll talk about whether so-called nickel and diming has run its course and whether anyone should think about starting an airline right now. (laughs) But first, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. Yeah, from from the master of nickel and diming, my my (laughs) co-host, right? Well, Ben, another notable global airline has filed for bankruptcy. Uh, This is another one of those stories that in usual times would indisputably be the world's biggest airline news story of the week. But nowadays, I bet some people missed it with everything going on. We're talking about the giant Latin American company Avianca, based in Colombia with hubs elsewhere, like in Peru and El Salvador. Uh, Avianca had already suspended all its operations, which by itself, by today's standards anyways, may be no big deal. After all, Panama's Copa Airlines, which is generally one of the world's most successful airlines, is also completely grounded right now. But anyway, Ben, talk to us about Avianca. Uh, First of all, what we call Avianca is actually the product of, of a merger years ago between the old Colombian airline Avianca and Taka, which was based in El Salvador and is an airline you know very well. Well, that's right. I worked for Taka for a few years, and one of the board members at Avianca used to be my boss at Taka. So Avianca is a terrific airline, actually, and they're a very old airline. They began in 1919, which is earlier than a lot of the U.S. airlines. And it is a big story that they have filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. But importantly, they didn't file to liquidate the company. They filed to restructure themselves. Organization or whatever it's called there. Yeah, exactly. Like Chapter 11. That's right. And airlines have used that tool to make themselves a little leaner often at the expense of some creditors or maybe employees in some cases, retirement, retired employees especially. And so if Avianca uses this tool properly, I'm guessing they're going to emerge a little stronger and a little better able to deal with some of the real difficulties in the current airline environment. Yeah, it's a company that has been kind of messy for some reasons related to that merger, disputes between sort of the people who used to run the predecessor airlines and that kind of thing. They've had a an operation that in some ways was, was successful, but just sort of structural problems with the company 
questions about. There was an early call Avianca Brazil, which sort of had some common lineage, but a separate company. And so it, it seems like something where the very core of what they did was working, but a lot of stuff around it uh, had, had put them in, well, let's just say not the kind of situation you would want to be in going into the world's biggest crisis ever. Yeah, I think that's right. But, you know, crisis requires new thinking. And sometimes an airline that can use the tools of a bankruptcy, again, it's not an easy process. It's a difficult process for many creditors of the airline, but it may be a way for them to reemerge as a stronger, financially healthier company that can better be better equipped to deal with low-cost carriers, deal with um, a much larger LATAM in the same region, yeah. and uh, you know, keep an airline that's been in business for literally over a century now, right? Keep it yeah. going. Yeah. Uh, and uh, for some consumers, their first thought when there's an airline bankruptcy is, what about my miles? That's relevant here because Avianca, you know, a star alliance partner to airlines like United, Lufthansa and others. And I saw that uh, Gary Leff in his view from the wing blog noted that uh, it's apparently a popular program because it's it's rather generous. Some people use it as kind of a bank uh, for their miles. But he pointed out also that these programs uh as long as the airline is okay, the program also should be okay, even though there is that ever-present risk with any pro- any of these programs that uh, you know the miles are only as valuable as the existence of the companies themselves. Well, meanwhile, elsewhere in the Americas, the biggest Latin American airline of them all, LATAM, which you just mentioned, officially agreed with Delta on the terms of the joint venture they've been planning to launch. Ben, I think it's safe to say this is not quite the cause for celebration right now that these airlines hoped back when they shocked the airline world last year by announcing LATAM was breaking up with its old girlfriend, American, and its old girlfriend's family, One World, and shacking up instead and planning to marry (laughs) Delta. Yeah, I might say they divorced themselves from American rather than just broke up, right? That was a shock to the world, actually, because American, which had – you know, clearly sort of a lion's share of the market share from the U.S. to Latin America, especially not so much within Latin America, but the U.S. to Latin America as a result of their hub in Miami and their relationship with LATAM really saw that upended when LATAM moved to Delta. Delta had been moving into many of the same markets American serves out of their hub from Atlanta which provides better connectivity than Miami does as a hub. And LATAM brings them all that local service into Miami as well. So it's a, it was a shock to the airline world when that was announced. And I'm sure a real hit to American Airlines and their global aspirations and their, you know, what was really a 20 or 30 year run as the real dominant player in Latin America. They'll still be very strong there. I'm not suggesting they won't be. But Delta has put themselves into a, a, a real competitive position there. Right. American basically picked up where Eastern Airlines left off in, in Miami, its giant hub to Latin America. Now, on the other hand, from a financial standpoint, for now anyway, is the joke sort of on Delta in the sense that Delta paid $2 billion to, to, to buy a stake of Latab safe to say, I mean, I haven't done the math here, but but uh, but but that stake is worth a whole lot less than that now. So this was not like when Delta, 
you know, bought half of Virgin Atlantic for $300 million. I mean, they practically stole it. This They invested a lot of money, weakened their own balance sheet, and now here we are uh, with COVID-19. So so uh, as much as maybe in the long term it'll be a home run for Delta, in the short term, not exactly what they, what they had hoped, especially considering how little air service and how little demand for air service there is intercontinentally today. Well, that's right. But Delta's clearly been playing the long game when it comes to international partnerships and investments. And their their purchase of uh, – or their investment in, in Virgin Atlantic, their investments in Mexico with Latam and Asia have all been about sort of securing their long-term position in big economies around the world. The current environment clearly isn't the best. And all you can say about what they paid for LATAM is that anybody who owns any airline today, whether they own one share or lots of shares, probably paid a lot more for it than the airline is worth right now. Right. <laughs> so Delta's Delta's not alone, right? In having what now looks like a like a lot of money for LATAM, eventually that property will be worth what it was worth again at some point because of their position in the continent, in a growing continent with growing population, growing economies, you know, COVID-19 aside, that's going to come back and Latin America is going to be a strong economy again, just like North America will be again also. So Delta's clearly playing the long game here. And while they can look and say, man, we paid a lot for that thing, you know, they're going to look back and think, I'm glad we have that, though, and it's going to still provide a good return for the long-term investor, which is what Delta is. Yeah, these are, after all, strategic investments, clearly. Now, look, they don't want to go around overpaying for things, but uh, they weren't just a financial investor here. Not just Well, you know, I, I remember when everybody thought that uh, United overpaid when they paid, I think, $750 million for Pan Am's Pacific Authorities. Yeah. And today that looks so cheap. Yeah. And everybody said Alaska overpaid for Virgin America. And today with a COVID world, it looks like they absolutely did. But yeah. I still think over time, when you look at sort of the physical assets they gained in Los Angeles and San Francisco and the fact that Virgin isn't there to compete with them anymore and things like that, I think time will prove that, hey, that was – they needed to pay that. They, they, they couldn't have gotten it any cheaper and it was a good strategic buy for them. Yeah, and they uh, kept Virgin America from continuing to be a competitor and kept uh, JetBlue from from establishing what it wanted to sta- uh, establish on the West Coast and, and uh, transcontinentally in some of its markets. So yeah, absolutely, that was a strategic uh, buy, no question. Well, Ben, there was a feature story in this week's Airline Weekly that caught my eye because it sounded a little crazy to me at first, but it's actually an interesting discussion. The question asked is, is this actually an excellent time to start a U.S. airline? It's a question that's obviously relevant to David Nealman trying to launch Breeze Airways, to Andrew Levy trying to launch Extra or whatever would end up being called, but also just for any perspective startup. Now, look, the arguments against this being a good time to get into the airline industry are strong, and they're so obvious that I'm not going to waste anyone's time going through them. Quite simply, anyone who bought the argument that this time was different, as they say in the U.S. airline industry, or that the industry wasn't as shock-prone as it used to be, well... That didn't turn out to be the case, did it? So again, those are all valid arguments, and and I don't mean to discount them by not going through them. It's just that you know them. Hear me out, though, for a minute here, Ben. going to give you the other side to it. The cost of capital is very low now. Airplanes are cheap. Interest rates are low. Labor is highly available, right? That pilot shortage, 
certainly come October 1st, probably not anymore. And not only that, but if you think of sort of the competitive situation of a new entrant, think of like when JetBlue started back in 2000. It started up against some very sick airlines, and only like Delta back then, which was which, which was kind of this high cost, uh, strategically challenged airline. JetBlue started with an all junior workforce, massive labor cost advantage against a sick incumbent like Delta, which was kind of its closest competitor. Well, here you are because of, again, going back to October 1st, if these airlines really do, I mean, let's hope it doesn't happen. But if we're really looking at the kinds of furloughs that, you know, 30% of pilots, whatever it ends up being, then the labor cost advantage of a new airline is even greater because everybody at the existing airline is not only working at high rates that were agreed to back before the crisis, but they're also just very senior. Right. If the most junior pilot in a lot of these airlines is a, you know, is, I don't know, a 10 year pilot or more. And then you get to start a new airline with brand new pilots and competing against these airlines that are now sicker. Not only that, but achieving scale. Right. A year ago was so daunting. The smallest airline was so big. You know, and so you start an airline with 10 or 20 planes and, and just how do you get scale, even if you have a you know, kind of an all junior workforce. But now the smallest other airline isn't going to be as big as it was, <laughs> even if it's going to be bigger than you are at first. So when I say all of that, Ben, I don't know, is it actually counterintuitively a better time to launch an airline than it might have been a couple of years ago? Well, you know, you make some good points, Seth. And there's one that you could also make, I think, which is... Well, I'll give you a little analogy, which may sound kind of odd, but I remember going to Fort Myers Airport, RSW, Regional mm-hmm. Southwest Airport in Florida, after I first became the CEO at Spirit. Uh-huh. And I remember being surprised at how it looked a little different than I was used to an airport looking. And it just looked more efficient and like where the bag belts were and how they worked. Everything just looked a little better. And I and I made a comment about that. And the person who was giving me the tour of the airport said, Wait, well, can, this I, can, is a- can I, can I, can I guess? Sure. Did they point out that it's the first airport built or designed after 9-11? Exactly right. Yeah. And they said, look, we designed this airport with all the post 9-11 yeah. security in mind. And so we did it smart. Every other airline had to sort of force fit those things. We designed it. And so there's that opportunity for a new airline that starts anywhere in the world right now, right? They could be the first post COVID airline. Yeah. And in doing so, can define what that means in terms of what it means in terms of safety, in terms of biological health, in terms of sanitizing airplanes and things. And so every airline is trying to figure out how do we get customers comfortable with our product again. A new airline could say, here's what we are, and we evolved from COVID, so we understand how to keep you safe, right? And and in some sense, that could almost be a marketing advantage for a new airline, I think. Now, all that said, I still don't think it's the best time to start an airline (laughs) because simply because airlines need a lot of cash and a lot of capital. I know it's all that. Right, right. I'm going to start an airline, but I'm going to do it with your money, not mine. (laughs) No, and, and the thing is you need a lot of money and there's a lot of money in the world and there's a lot of people who want investments and want to be first movers. But I just can't imagine that most of that money now is thinking an airline's the best place to go, right? There are so many other things that can be invested in right now and there's so much uncertainty. I mean, we don't know whether travel demand's going to be strong this December or maybe not till December 2024, right? We just don't know. And so investment money is inherently risk intolerant, 
right? And uh, and so I just can't imagine that it's the right time to, while there may be all the strengths you talked about and the one I talked about, which I think are all real good ideas, without a lot of capital, a new airline is not going to be successful. And I just don't see the financial world lining up to say now is the right time to start. And that is the number one reason businesses fail is, is a lack of capital, just kind of a lack of, of staying power. And that's why the David Nealman uh, breeze, is, before all this at least seemed interesting because they're starting with some cushion and, and just a lot of new companies, certainly new airlines, just run out of runway, if you will, before, yeah. before they're yeah. able to, well get off the ground to uh, continue the analogy. Well, Ben, we've been getting so many incredible questions from listeners that they're starting to pile up and I want to get to as many of them as we can. So today let's do something a little different. Let's take a couple questions before the break and the more questions after, because I have a feeling similar questions are on the minds of a lot of other people. That's great. Uh, yeah. First, I want to hit two questions about one big topic, ultra low cost carriers or ULCCs. Those are of course airlines like Spirit, which you used to run. So ULCCs and ancillary revenue, which is always a big topic when we talk about them. First, Edward writes, Ben and Seth, brand new listener, love the show during this COVID craziness. As a fellow employee for a ULCC, I have a question about fees. Do you see new fees that would have never been considered? Fees for blocking middle seats. Seems like Frontier may be testing this. Fees for masks or sanitary kits. Okay, so Ben, a quick update. Uh, Edward sent that several days ago. Frontier indeed had rolled out a plan to allow people to block middle seats next to them for, I think, starting at $39. There was huge media backlash, and they backed off that. But that said, I mean, look, that the concept actually wasn't new. There are airlines around the world that for years, have none in the US, but others around the world have, have allowed people to kind of bid almost on a standby basis for, hey, here's what I'm willing to pay if you don't sell out everything for me to sit next to an empty seat. And nobody objected to that that I know of when it was just a question of comfort and not, you know, catching a deadly virus or not. <laughs> but of course, there's the separate question of whether uh, having 18 inches of seat between you and another customer is just uh, a sense of, of security rather than actually any help when it comes to the virus. And that was the point that Frontier kind of kind of made. They said, well, hey, you know, this is me putting words in their mouth. They kind of said, you know, we don't think it makes a difference, but if you want the middle seat next to you, then fine, you can pay for it. Again, they were killed for that in the media. They pulled back. Edward says, what about fees for, like I said, masks or sanitary kits? Well, here we see Allegiant uh, was the first one that I'm aware of, and it's an ultra low cost carrier saying that it would hand these out for free. Masks, I think, uh, wipes and, and gloves. So in that case, a famous nickel and diming airline saying that it was willing to give all, give all that away. But anyway, when it comes to this stuff, at least, and like I said, we have another question. We can get to some of the other stuff. But but any new ancillary revenue streams for ULCCs in ways that they that they could actually do without, without <laughs> yeah, getting know, killed in the media? Well, you know, the, the tonality of what killed Frontier in the media was, you know, commentary from people saying – profiting on people's health and things like that. Right, I mean, really right. negative kind of stuff. Right. And that's just dangerous thing. So I, I, an airline needs to keep people safe and they keep people safe by maintaining their planes, by training their crews, right. And, you know, not crashing while you fly, all kinds of ways they keep yeah. you safe. And now in the new world, they've got to keep them safe biologically as well. And I think things they do to make that happen are part of the base product. And I think there would be pushback for things like fees for masks or sanitary kits or things like that. Now that said, 
There's a lot of things that you could think about changing over time in terms of change fees and rules that would allow you to change your ticket. I mean, I just, I don't feel well today. I may be infectious. Let me change my ticket, right? Today, they'd say, you know, sorry, there's a change fee for that. Is that a policy that should change over time? I don't know. But I mean, if you don't think about the actual PPE that someone would wear or use to clean their seat or something like that, because I don't think there'll be charges for that. That's about keeping everybody safe. Right. Behind the scenes, certain policies, again, around change fees, around um, refundability, things like that, I think we may see some adjustments to those over time in some ways to be more flexible and in some ways to not allow abuse, both from sort of this world where there's an expectation now, if I feel sick, I shouldn't be there. So what are you going to do about that airline? Because you used to charge me for that. Right. So it makes sense that in the longer term, you can't do what Frontier did. And while you have people so fearful, roll something like, like that out. But once things stabilize, then you figure out what are kind of the non-life or death things where you can kind of tease out what people care about in the new world and, and, and let them pay in some cases for, for those things that aren't a question of whether or not they're, <laughs> they're, they're going to survive. Cause that's, that, that's clearly where the, where the line is. is that's is right. Well, next Michael from New York writes, love the podcast. Hope you're both staying safe. Thank you, Michael. Uh, I have a question regarding new social distancing and health procedures on airplanes and how that might impact an airline's ability to generate ancillary revenue. So this is some of the same stuff that Edward asked, but I just want to go through this and, and a few other questions here. So ULCC is such a spirit increasingly more majors rely heavily on ancillary revenue streams such as seat selection, extra legroom, onboard food service, uh, et cetera, to lower base fares and maximize their profitability. How might limited seat selection and less overall seats available due to social distancing, as well as the suspension of in-flight meal service, impact airline profitability and go-to market strategy? Will base fares rise as airlines look to rebundle some of these amenities to grab more customer wallet share. Thanks so much and stay safe. Thanks again, Michael. A lot, lot of questions in there, Ben, but again, just if you're hitting a couple more of sort of the ancillary uh, angles and the, this question of whether, on the other hand, things might just have to be rebundled because things that seemed optional maybe aren't optional after all. Yeah, that's it's a good question. And it brings a point that has been bothering me, Seth, is sort of on in the media, especially when they sort of equate middle seats empty and social distancing. The two have absolutely nothing to do with each other, right? <laughs> I, I like an empty seat next to me as well, but I don't think for a minute that sort of protects me from coronavirus when there's people sitting across the aisle from me and right in front and right behind me and things like that. So this idea that a middle seat is is somehow equal to social distancing on an airplane is just craziness, I think. That said, I also don't think that there will be a lot of rebundling of certain amenities like bags or even seat assignments or food on board or things like that, simply because the economics of that stuff is just too powerful for airlines. They, They can make more money offering you a lower total fare and selling things separately to people who may value those things differently than trying to bundle it all back. The reason that ancillary fees have been so successful, even for high fare airlines to emulate, 
is because of the economic value that those ancillary revenues provide versus a bundled product. So I don't think fees will go away as a result of coronavirus. Although what people are, if anything, you think they might actually get a little bit greater as people get more concerned to say, wow, I really do want to pick where I sit in this airplane, whereas before I didn't care so much. So now I'm going to buy a seat assignment where where maybe I wouldn't have before. Or maybe I have to bring a little bit more with me because I've got to bring some PPE with me or something, right, if they think that. And so they may even take over some more bags. One real interesting thing here, Seth, that I thought was interesting is I don't know if you saw that Emirates is not allowing large carry-ons to come on board right now. And they're saying that that it is the large carry-ons while they're being put into the overhead bins and on depart and on arrival taken out of the overhead bins where most of the face-to-face and close contact of both customers and flight attendants is in place. And they say if we don't allow any big bags on board, we can stay a little bit more distance in both boarding and go- getting off the plane. And I thought that was real interesting. They didn't talk about any exceptions for business class or first class customers or things. We'll see whether that's how they actually implement it or not. But if that's something that takes off as sort of a way to keep people safer on airplanes, then all of a sudden Spirit's carry-on charge doesn't look so crazy anymore, right? That's for sure. Uh, Yeah, push bags back down into the belly. I I would worry on short haul trips about the impact. You know, what's what's interesting, I won't overuse the word ironic uh, after last week's episode rather, but um, with the the song, Uh, but uh, if you think about the bag fees, right? People started carrying more bags aboard flights because there was an incentive to do that. Once airlines started car- charging at first, of course, for for check bags, but not carry on bags. But then a lot of people just kind of enjoyed it. And on short haul flights, I-, I think some people actually started to prefer it because they didn't have to go to the you know to the bag claim and, and wait for the bag and all that. And, and and for you know if it's one of these markets where it would have been a three or four hour drive and it's it's a one hour flight, you know the extra little bit matters in terms of the total trip time. And so when you're Emirates flying, you know eight, ten, twelve, fourteen hours. Well, first of all, people don't have an alternative other than to fly in those markets, right? Uh, there, there might be other airlines to choose from, but they're not generally picking between Emirates in a train or Emirates in a car. Whereas in those shorter haul markets, uh, it, it can be a little more sensitive to that. You know, it's for somebody who really wants to carry aboard a bag and the trip only works for them if they can have their bag with them the whole time. So, you know, those are the kinds of things that, that different airlines would have to would have to think about. But no, you're right. That is when you're kind of face to face with all those people, that traffic jam, right? Putting the bags up there and and uh, taking them down. I mean, they're not wrong. Yeah, because one thing one thing that's actually good about airplanes when you think about transmission of disease beyond sort of the way air flows, of course, which we've talked about before, is the fact that you're actually not face to face with anybody normally, right? right? You're sitting face forward and you're looking at a seat in front of you, and the person behind you, even if they cough, some of that goes into their seat. Some of yeah. it probably comes around to you all, right? But it's no one's actually face to face, even the person that's sitting in the middle seat next to you. Yeah, is it face to face with you? Right, but no, it's true. At the beginning, and at the end, that's that's uh, that that is when everybody's face to face with each other. No, that's right. No question about. It. And let's see if new social norms emerge regarding that. Re- regardless of you know this policy, even if the bags still, you know, if people just sort of stay seated and file off in 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 a more orderly way, staying away from each other. Uh, I haven't been on a flight myself since all of this 
started. But or, do you know, Ben, like, is it just different getting off? Of, I'm sure some of our listeners have been on flights and know it, but, but is it just like different getting off a plane to people not getting each other's faces? That's why I realize there aren't as many people on board. But is that something? You know, I haven't flown since early March. Mm-hmm. But my sense just from like, you know, I'm mostly staying home like you, but going to the grocery store or, yeah. or I've had to go to the post office once actually too. My yeah. sense <laughs> is that people are very conscious of yeah. distancing. And so my my guess is that people are just th- there's limits to how much they can stay away from each other on an airplane. Right. But I'm guessing that most people are pretty conscientious of that and not just, you know, bumping into you so I can get my bag out before you get yours. Yeah. I think there's probably a little more civility now is like, hey, you get your bag and I'll stand over here, then I'll get mine. I'm just guessing it's a little more like that. Yeah. And that's why, you know, not to get into the whole the political debate, but but people who are anxious to reopen the country and who demonstrate that I'm talking in the U.S. by not wearing masks, it's kind of counterintuitive because if if you think if you think we ought to be able to get back about our business, then you ought to be in favor of us then taking all of the uh, all of the measures that we can uh, to to protect each other as we then go about. Getting, getting back about our business. Well, is United in worse shape than other airlines or is it just meaner or not leaner or just more honest? Well, it's that plus a finer wine conspiracy theory about turbulence. Or is it a conspiracy theory? When Airlines Confidential returns. <laughs> Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Fine or wine is next. But first, we've been getting some excellent questions for you, as I said before. Here are a couple more. Joe from Dallas. Hi. Over the last few weeks, we've all seen the airline take their own approach to COVID-19. But one thing I noticed is United appears to be the most aggressive in initiating cost-cutting plans. In your opinion, is this the case of United genuinely being too heavily staffed corporate or on the front line? Or is this airline seeing something that the other airlines are not? Thanks for your time. Or is it something else, Ben? Is it just that United is talking more about all these things than other airlines? To me, that, that's sort of the the third option. Is is this a United-specific problem? I mean, are they feeling the impact of this more? Are they more heavily staffed? Or are they just being, however you want to view it, more honest or more or <laughs> or, 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 or more doomsday? Uh, you mentioned last week, you know, maybe... Maybe different audiences, right? Uh, not not just trying to prepare their employees, but thinking about how folks in government who might be in a position to help them some more might might take this. What do you think is the difference? Is the real difference between United and the other airlines who at least haven't made headlines for saying all the same things that United has said? I think that the current management at United prides themselves on being aggressive and prides themselves on being to the point and not letting problems lie. The fact that Scott Kirby, their incoming CEO, for example, made a statement that they were planning for zero net revenue for the year. Not saying, he pointed out saying, look, we're not, we're not projecting that, but we're planning that if that's the case, we're still going to survive and we're going to do well. That's more aggressive than any other CEO has stated sort of the case of the environment. And so when they announced this big layoff on October 1, which is 
I just think more than coincidentally, the first day after the government sure. um, subsidy ends. I think it's I think it's all about look, we're owning our response to this crisis, and we we're clear about the situation we're in. We're clear about the lack of demand, and I think they're sending messages to their employees. I think they're sending messages to people in government who watch, and I also think they're sending messages to investors who are deciding which airlines do I own, if any, or not, and saying, "Look, we're going to take control of our destiny here strongly." Now, interestingly, they weren't the ones who decided every customer should wear a facial covering. That was JetBlue, as we all know, right? Right. And they haven't necessarily gone to the how do we make customers comfortable angle of things. But on the finance side of things, they've been very aggressive on those things. And that suggests to me messages to employees, investors, and maybe governments. And they seem to like that kind of position. And so I'm guessing they're going to keep sort of pushing boundaries on that end. Yeah. If anything, they've just been more absolutist about, look, it's a crisis. So that's I mean, in terms of the customer's perspective, they're the ones who have been among the least generous in terms of refund. Yeah, the window where if, if your plans change, American, at least for tickets purchased farther back, was kind of the most flexible about if your plans change just an hour, uh, you might get a full refund. Delta, what was it, 90 minutes? You know, it was six hours, you know, that that kind of thing. So yeah, they've just kind of taken this this uh, this very absolute approach. Interesting too, just the difference in personal style of, of CEOs, you know, Doug Parker and Scott Kirby, who worked all those years together. And now of course are, are uh, uh, well, as, as Scott takes over anyway, running uh, these competing airlines, Doug Parker is kind of the eternal optimist, you know, <laughs> you know he's, no airline can ever lose money again. Never, you mean? <laughs> right, exactly. I'm sure he, he never regrets saying, yeah, but just even, even up with more mundane things, you know, he's sort of that, that's just his, that's just his tone, you know, and, and, you know, likes to kind of, while I'm sure preparing for the worst, you know, be sunny uh, in terms of, in terms of the outlook and Scott, as you said, very different. And then uh, two guys who, who ran airlines together for many years together, but, but uh, just, just, uh, just very different in that regard. Well, you know, in an earlier podcast, Seth, I referred to Scott as the, uh, he had been the Dick Cheney of the airline industry. Yeah. And so imagine Dick Cheney as president. Don't you yeah. think that's the kind of president he would have been? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, he's uh, not, not the touchiest feely as president. <laughs> Needless to say. Well, speaking of Scott, uh, Scott from Daytona Beach writes, I teach marketing classes at Embry-Riddle and I love your show. My, my research assistant, Johanna, and I were uh, curious about the economics of in-flight magazines now that they are on the chopping block as those filthy seat back pockets get cleaned out for good. Have these traditionally been money makers? Or losers for the airline, will these go the way of the printed timetable? Scott says, I bet I can guess Ben's take on this one with a little <laughs> smiley face. And he says, he says, by the way, he says, no, we know this is a rather trivial topic in the grand scheme of things right now, but uh, there is significant nostalgia associated with some of the long-running publications. Uh, there are articles out there that highlight the environmental benefits and fuel savings associated with going all digital. Uh, yet I was amazed to see just how big the readership is for some of these long-running magazines. Uh, well, thank you, Scott. I should say something else, Ben, before I let you answer. You don't have to start your messages by telling us how much you like this podcast. You can tell us you hate this pod. You can send us a message only about how much you hate this podcast and nothing else. No question <laughs> either. And we will read it on the air. We, we don't discriminate. But it well, is but, nice that some But it is did. nice. We we do appreciate it. So yeah, so tell me, Ben, those magazines, I think they started off just sort of as a 
I assume many years ago is kind of a value add, a service, a way to entertain people. They became, at least at some moments in time, profit centers because of all the advertising and, and, and all the rest of it. They've generally been outsourced over the past couple decades, right? I don't think many airlines were producing their own their own printed magazines, but that was kind of its own industry. And there were some companies that that uh, made a lot of money doing that and that I'm sure are, are threatened by this. But uh, I mean, how else you would think? you know who the top 10 cardiologists in Phoenix are? <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the victims of the COVID-19 crisis will be airline magazines for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that magazines overall, are considered sort of a thing to just transmit disease. I mean, you go to um, doctors who are open now and dentists who are open now on limited bases. They've taken all magazines out of their waiting rooms because they say, we don't want someone to touch it and leave it there. And then you pick it up and, and giving. So I think magazines in general are being thought of as a, as a unneeded potential source of transmitting virus. So let's get rid of them. And I think that, that's going to translate to we don't need this in the airplane either. Secondly, people read these things because there's nothing else to do on the plane, right? I don't know that people are getting subscriptions to American Way or to uh, Southwest Spirit Magazine, right? Like that, right? And like, oh, I can't wait for my new edition to come, right? It's like they look through it. Maybe they play the Sudoku. Maybe they uh, you know, do something. And that's kind of it. And you're right. They've been – They've been managed to probably be close to break even with the advertisements they get. They add weight to the plane, so they burn, airplanes burn a little bit more fuel. So if they're honest, they're counting that into the cost of having the magazine. But you remember there used to be two magazines in the airplane. There used to be that. And there used to be Skyball. Yeah. Remember that? Oh, yeah. And that – and dream Skyball. about your, I don't know, massage chair or whatever. <laughs> That's you know, right. The, the and, image kind of stuff, yeah. And Sky Mall went away because it just didn't make sense anymore when everybody could order things online and had their phones with them and things like that. And that became antiquated in a sense, and it went away. So I just think the, uh, I just think the magazines are going to go away. And the real question is going to be, will there be anything done about the required things in the seat back, like the escape information and the emergency information that potentially transmits virus, just like magazines. So will airlines have to start cleaning those or maybe pull them all out and put a clean set in the new one or something like that? I mean, I think that's a real issue that airlines have to be thinking about in terms of what is a post COVID airline look like if we're going to get rid of magazines so you can't transmit virus, what about the emergency card? I think airline magazines are collateral damage to this whole thing. Yeah. I just hope they don't ever get rid of those funny cartoons on the emergency cards, right? Whatever they do, if it's like a sticker <laughs> on the seat back, I just always want to see those those awkward cartoons with like yeah, that's right. <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, do you have a question for us? Uh, you can do what Joe did. Call us at 305-379-7429 and record a question for us anytime during the week. Again, 305-379-7429. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you can do what Scott did. Jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. You'll see a form on there to submit your question. While beginning our initial descent on today's show, it's time for fine or whine. We listen to an actual customer complaint, and then we talk about whether the complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Ben, you have a complaint. Yes, I do, Seth. This one is from Linda, who flew Ryanair from Leeds, Bradford to Palma de Mallorca. Linda writes, at the same time point in both flights, there was an announcement re, quote, the captain has put on the seatbelt sign, so return to your seat, etc. 
Both times, there was not a hint of any turbulence whatsoever, and the staff, pilots, etc. seemed to have a little break to use the loo, etc. They made the passengers sit there for 15 to 20 minutes when there was no turbulence and was for their own convenience. I have to say, Ben, offhand, uh, unless I'm remembering incorrectly, you have sided with customers for quite a few of these in a row. I mean, to a surprising degree for a guy who used to run the most... (laughs) Hated airline in in the universe, and I mean I haven't flown an airline on Mars or Venus, but I'm pretty sure that if there is one, people still hate Spirit more. So, uh, so for that guy, you've you've taken the side of customers. What about this one? Are, are pilots faking turbulence so uh, just because the cabin crew and cockpit crew don't want to deal with customers? Well, you know that that's kind of a funny idea, but I actually think this one is a real wine, Seth, and it's kind of nice to see one that I can call a wine for a while. There is no way that pilots or flight attendants want people to sit in their seats with their seats buckled so they don't have to do anything, right? They especially like even on Ryanair, which I know gets the same kind of problems as ULCCs in the US in terms of customer complaints. It's the pilots, especially behind, you know, that they don't even see people on the flights, right? They just want to, they want to fly. They want to get the airplane there safely. The best ones don't want to burn a lot of fuel doing it, right? And things like that. That's most of them actually, right? And so I don't think they think about, oh, it's time to not. There's also pilots like other people in the airline rely on information they're given. And it's very possible that they're being told from other pilots that are ahead of them en route or from air traffic control that you're moving into some turbulence. So they they put the seatbelt sign on anticipating what might be turbulence and then it ends up not being that. But it's not because they had any nefarious reason to make you sit in your seat. They actually thought it might be bumpy and maybe, maybe they got a new altitude and climbed above it. Or maybe what was there 20 minutes before isn't there anymore. Right. And I think that's more the reality of it. Um, I think that's I think I think this is kind of whining. And when you're sitting on the plane, most people aren't waiting for the flight attendant to come down anyway. I mean, maybe if you need a drink or you want you want to buy a snack or something, which is on Ryanair, what you have to do like spirit. Right. You right. Just have to buy and Ryanair, they're working on commission. Right. If they're sitting and they're not selling uh, the, the, those all that stuff on the cart they're they're making less money so I would no think that's they, that's exactly <laughs> right they're hurting themselves when they're not selling that's right and so they don't they don't they don't want to not be be told they have to sit down either that's exactly right it's yeah. probably a big piece of their income and, and i think you make a good point too is is people think about modern meteorology and there's no question it's gotten an important reason why flying is generally a lot safer now than it used to be decades ago is that meteorology is better. But when it comes to just kind of routine turbulence and all of that, pilots, a lot of it is just just manual talking to other pilots, right? And then just things change. But when they think it's going to be turbulent, it could be thanks to thanks to technology, but it could also just be that they've heard pilots ahead of them talking about choppy air and they are erring on the side of caution. They'd rather be wrong about, you know, thinking it's going to be turbulent and then have it not be turbulent than, than the other way around. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So I think this customer, it's easy to pick on airlines like Ryanair. Um, and I think this is a wine in this case. Yeah. Well, on final approach, now that does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Please fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seat backs and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, 
We'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429. Or you can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And I'm Ben Baldanza. We'll talk to you soon. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.